Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. There were a lot of interesting things that happened during the Great Depression in our nation. One of the interesting things about my personal family is my grandfather died last summer. Uh, He was 95, but during the Great Depression, he was the oldest of nine children. They actually lived in a cave in the southern part of Missouri for a period because they could not afford to even live in a house. So they lived in a cave during the Great Depression. But it was at the end of the Great Depression in January of 1939 in southern Missouri in the Boot Hill area that something happened that caused a national story. What happened was the sharecroppers were allowed to live on the farms of these landowners. And these landowners would allow the sharecroppers to live on their land and they could work the ground they could work the field they could have a part of the produce a share of the profits and what was happening is because it was the great depression the government at that time announced that the sharecroppers would also be entitled a direct portion of farm subsidies as well as the profits they got from being sharecroppers. Well, this didn't sit well with the landowners. The landowners did not like the fact that the sharecroppers in their minds were getting double. They were getting part of the harvest, but they were also getting a government subsidy. So what the landowners did was they said this, okay, it's better for us to hire day laborers to come in and pick the crops as opposed to having the sharecroppers get double-dipped because of the government subsidy. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to evict all of the sharecroppers off of our land. So what ended up happening was 1,500 people were disp- didn't have a place to live. They had no home. They had, answer your phone. <laughs> they, had, uh, they had no place to live. Um, basically what ended up happening was about 1,000, and they were mostly African-American, they ended up going out on this highway in southern Missouri, Highway 60 and 61, and they went out there and they had um, chairs, bed frames, stoves, huts, and so all these, these families had no place to live, and so they're basically camping out on the highway as people are coming by, and, and it began to get national attention because people were coming by and taking photographs, and you, you had children shivering in the middle of January with no place to live, and so basically what ended up happening was it caused a national story about all of these sharecroppers that got evicted, and you go back and you listen to the testimonies of some of these sharecroppers, and they basically just said, we just want to have a fair living. We, we, we're not trying to get anything from the government. We just want to work with our hands. We want, to, we want to take pride in what we're doing. And so this was evidently an issue of injustice where a landowner evicted a sharecropper so they had to go live out pretty much on the side of the road. 
Now that's an example of injustice of a landowner on a sharecropper that happened back in the Great Depression. Now why do I bring up sharecropping, injustice, landowners, things of that nature? Well, Jesus is going to tell us a parable about sharecropping in ancient Israel. But instead of the landowner being unjust, the landowner being wicked, the landowner dispossessing or kicking out the sharecroppers, what we find out is that the sharecroppers, the tenants, they're the ones that act wickedly. They're the ones that act violently. So we're going to look at this parable. Now this parable shows up in both Matthew and Mark as well as in Luke. And it is the most allegorical of all of Jesus' parables. Now, what do I mean by allegorical? What I mean by allegorical is everything in the parable stands for something else. It's very easy to see that. So there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of allegory going on in this parable. And so really, it's primarily directed towards the religious leaders. Because if you remember, the past few weeks, the the religious leaders are not submitting to the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus tells this parable directly to them to confront their disobedience. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at this parable from two vantage points, okay? First of all, I want us just to see the allegory, see the parallels, look at the parable in the cultural context of ancient Israel and find out what Jesus is saying. That's what I want us to do first. Second, most importantly, this parable is about Jesus. Jesus is the main character in the parable, and what he says at the end draws attention to him, and so I want to focus on what Jesus says about himself so that we can respond appropriately to our Lord and Savior. So let's just first read the parable at face value and see what Jesus is sharing with us. So Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out or leased it out to tenants. And then he went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You ready to go home now? Makes a lot of sense, right? It's about a man that planted a vineyard. 
Now, in that ancient culture of Israel, it took about four to five years for a vineyard to become productive. It would take a lot of irrigation, a lot of cultivation. It really wouldn't start yielding a crop of grapes until about four or five years. And so this landowner plants a vineyard, and then he leases it out to sharecroppers or to tenants to take care of it while he's gone. So he goes away on a long trip. Now, in ancient Israel... They did have a lot of sharecroppers. They did not own their own land like these landowners. And so the sharecroppers hoped that these landowners would lease out their land so that at least they could work on it, get a profit, take care of it. And so that's basically what's going on. They're, they're supposed to take care of the vineyard while the landowner is gone. And sometimes these landowners would be gone for long periods of time. But periodically they would send back their servants to collect rent. Again, the tenants didn't own the land. They were just sharecroppers. They were, they were leasing it out. But the owner would come back and say, okay, I want my rent. Or he would come back maybe after four or five years, send a servant back and say, hey, has the crop produced? Is there fruit? Is there grapes? I want to come see what the harvest is. I want to show if you've been taking care of my vineyard the way you're supposed to. So, again, this is an allegory. There's a lot of symbolism going on. So let's talk about the symbolism. What do each of the characters in the parable represent? Okay, obviously, first of all, the landowner represents God the Father. God the Father is the landowner that plants the vineyard. Okay, second, what's the vineyard? What is the vineyard? The vineyard represents the nation of Israel. If you go back and look at your Old Testament, God sovereignly planted the nation of Israel and he called it his choice vineyard. You go back to places like Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7. And this is called the song of the vineyard where God is speaking. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God planted the vineyard Israel. And, the, and Israel was supposed to produce righteousness, obedience, to be a light to the nations, to be this great nation that God had chosen. Jeremiah 2.21 Yet I planted you, talking to Israel, a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? See, here's the issue with Israel. God chose Israel as his nation, and they had so many privileges. They had the prophets. They had the sacrificial system. They had the temple. They had the word of God. They had all of these blessings that God chose to give to Israel. Paul even mentions this in Romans chapter 9, 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, whose God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Privilege upon privilege. Yet with great privilege comes what? Great responsibility. How did Israel as the vine usually operate? <laughs> they became wild, they became disobedient. God would have to send them prophets to confront their idolatry, their rebellion, their immorality, their, their laziness. So in essence, Israel was supposed to be producing the fruit of righteousness 
as God's chosen nation. And many times throughout the Old Testament, and even here during Jesus' time, God would come to his nation, Israel, and say, you're my vine, but you're not producing. You're not being obedient. You're not being what I've called you to be, a fruitful vine, a life-giving force. Now, obviously, how does this apply to us today? We're not the nation of Israel. We're not ancient Israel, but as God's people today, we are God's chosen people. We are his people to live for him. We are the church of the living God. And so as a church, as Christians today, we have privileges that ancient Israel had as well. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. How are we to behave as God's church, as the church of the living God? The question individually in your personal lives, in the life of your family, in the life of your church, are you producing fruit? the fruit of righteousness? Are you displaying the fruit of the Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22-23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Evaluate yourself this morning and ask yourself, am I bearing fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Are you bearing fruit that lasts? Jesus would say in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide or your fruit should last. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Israel had a great responsibility as God's chosen people. And with that great responsibility came or with those privileges came great responsibility. Same thing with us. We've been given great privileges as God's people, and with that comes great responsibility. Would we be a people of pure worship? Would we be a lighthouse for God? 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. We are God's chosen people to worship the Lord and shine his light and be fruitful. And ancient Israel and Israel during the time of Jesus was not being that. Now, who was responsible for making sure Israel was on the right path of producing fruit? The religious leaders. They were the ones who were supposed to teach the people the truth. Teach the people the law. Teach the people how to follow the Lord. The religious leaders. So in this parable, who are the religious leaders? They're the wicked tenants who beat the servants when they came back. In this parable, the wicked tenants are the scribes, the Pharisees, the people that Jesus is talking to. Because if you get down to the end, look at verse 19. I didn't read that. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Jesus is telling this parable against them. Who's the bad guy in the parable? It's the wicked tenant. This is the religious leaders. 
of the day. They're acting violently. I mean, three times the owner sends back a servant, and each three times they beat, they beat the servant. They beat him violently. They leave him empty-handed. They are violent. They are wicked. They are greedy. And so Israel is plagued at this time in the nation's history by wicked leadership. The spiritual leaders of Israel are wicked The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're not producing fruit. They're not leading the nation to produce fruit. They're not helping the people to grow. They are not being the spiritual leaders God has called them to be. So, again, what's the application for us today? Just as it was in ancient Israel, God had spiritual leaders to help them. In the same way here in the church today, God has given us spiritual leaders to help us bear fruit. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11-13, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? The leaders in the church to do what? To equip the saints for the works of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, God says, I want spiritual godly leaders that are going to help mature the church. Now, I take this very seriously because this is my job description. Pastor Sean, what's your job description? Right there. Verse 11 and 12. To equip you for works of ministry so that we can all become mature believers in Christ. To be an equipping type ministry. And so the Bible speaks about fruit. And it speaks about bearing fruit in two categories. Number one, the fruit of the Spirit, character. Are you is the Holy Spirit birthing or growing or cultivating that Christian character in your life? The other way the Bible speaks about fruit is evangelism and salvation and, and seeing a harvest of people come to faith in Christ. Now, we can't control how God saves people. But we can control the fact that we can go and share the gospel and we can tell people about Jesus. Okay, so God's the landowner. Israel's the vine. The scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the wicked tenants. Okay, who are the servants that God sends back or the landowner sends back? Okay, fourth, the servants are the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets who came with God's word to challenge Israel. What happened in the Old Testament oftentimes when God would send a prophet to Israel? Did they listen to him? No, they killed him oftentimes. They persecuted the prophets. This happened to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 25-26. From that day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, okay, hundreds of years later, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. God's saying, I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel, and you've not listened to any of them. You've detested them. You've kicked them out. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was put in a stockade, Jeremiah 20. Another time, Jeremiah was beaten and put into prison, chapter 37. And then in chapter 38, they finally put him in a cistern because they wanted to shut him up. They put him down in a well. This is not recorded in Scripture, but it's according to Jewish history. The prophet Isaiah fled for his life and hid in a tree, and they saw the tree in half, thus severing Isaiah in half. He was chopped in half. Zechariah the prophet was murdered in the temple. And right before Stephen was stoned to death, the first martyr, Stephen, was stoned 
Listen to what Stephen says when, they're, when these, these religious leaders are looking at him. Acts 7.52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Okay, what happens when the landowner sends back the servants? Probably after four or five years to go either collect rent or get the fruit off the vine. Well, they beat the servants. They treated them cruelly. They sent them away empty-handed. Three times, the landowner sends a servant, gets beaten and thrown out. Sends another servant, gets beaten and thrown out. Another servant, beaten and thrown out. Okay, at this point, the parable shifts. There's a twist. There's a pivot in verse 13. Because three times God has sent his servants to the vineyard, to Israel, to address the fact that they're not producing. And what do the wicked leaders do? What do the religious leaders do? They kick them out. But then in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 14. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, if you're hearing this parable for the first time, what are you thinking? No, don't send the son. Don't send the beloved son. Don't send your heir. They've treated the, the your, they've beaten your servants. They're going to kill your son. Don't do it. Don't send the son. They're only going to do the same thing. And what happens? Verse 15. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, the landowner has a choice at this point. It's gone too far. You've beaten my servants, but now you've killed my beloved son. Now, verse 16 gives us what the landowner does. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, you've got to catch this. How did the people respond when they heard what the landowner was going to do? They said, surely not. Or in the original Greek text, God forbid. This is terrible. Now, what were they upset about? Were they upset that the landowner killed the tenants? Were they upset that the beloved son was killed? What were they upset about? That the vineyard was given to another. Now, what's going on here? This is none other than God saying, Israel, because of your obedience, I'm choosing to give your vineyard to the Gentiles. You've lost it. And the religious leaders are saying, heaven forbid, God, give the vineyard, give Israel to the Gentiles. We're his chosen people. Now, you know what happened in A.D. 70. It literally happened. God gave the vineyard to the Gentiles. In AD 70, the Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem, burned down the wall, destroyed the temple, and basically everything was destroyed in Israel. In AD 70, the vineyard was given over to another, the Gentiles. Now let's recap the symbolism for a moment. Did you catch the landowner as God, the patience of God? Catch his patience? He's gone for a long time. What could have God done after the first servant was killed? You, 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 beat, my, you beat my first servant, you send him away empty-handed, here's how I'm going to deal with it. 
I'm going to send an army, I'm going to send a delegation, and we're going to come take care of this once and for all. We're going to kill all of you. But no, he lets it go on a second time. He lets it go on a third time. The natural response would be, I'm going to get even. But here's the thing. God the Father is patient. Now you should say amen to that. God is patient. Because God is patient with us when we deserve so much justice. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is slow to anger. Isaiah 65, 2, this is God speaking, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. The imagery here is God saying, listen, I'm I'm extending my patience to you. Come back to me. I'm not going to execute justice. Just come back to me. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, the, tr- the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I love this. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display what? His perfect patience. His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God is patient. God is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Romans 2, 4, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance God is patient and kind now again the vineyard represents Israel which should have produced fruit the wicked tenants represent the religious leaders of the day the scribes and the Pharisees who were leading the people astray the servants that are sent back represent the Old Testament prophets but what is the greatest symbolism in the parable Obviously, who is the beloved son that the landowner sends back? It is who? Jesus. Jesus is the beloved son. So let's focus our attention on what Jesus says about himself as the beloved son. And it's, it's no accident that Jesus uses the term there in verse 13. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Beloved son. This was first used at his baptism. God spoke from heaven in Luke 3.22. The Holy Spirit descended on him bodily in form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. The second time we hear this is at the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke 9.35. A voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my son, my chosen one, my beloved one. Listen to him. So how will the How will the Pharisees and the scribes and the wicked tenants, how are they going to treat the beloved son? Well, in the parable, what do they do? They kick him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Notice the order. They kick him out and then kill him. 
They don't kill him in the vineyard. They kick him out of the vineyard and kill him. That's very important because what's going to happen just a few days later? Remember, this is Holy Week. This is probably on Monday or Tuesday when Jesus is teaching this. On Friday, what are these wicked leaders going to do? They're going to plot against Jesus. They're going to have a mock trial. They're going to hand him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. And where will Jesus be crucified? Will he be crucified in Jerusalem? No, he'll be kicked out and have to go to the Golgotha. He'll have to take his cross outside the city. John 19, 17. He went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Jesus went out of the vineyard. Jesus went out of Jerusalem and was killed on Calvary. Hebrews 13, 12 through 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, in this parable, it's amazing that the father would send the son. Because what's been the pattern? Mistreatment, mistreatment, mistreatment. What do you think is going to happen when you send the beloved son? Mistreatment. What did God do with Jesus in sending him to die for us? God did not spare his son, but sent Jesus knowing full well he would be mistreated on the cross for us. That's why Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is about Jesus, the beloved son, being killed on the cross outside the gate for our sins. And the father did it because of his patience up to a point. But notice what Jesus does there. He quotes Psalm 118.22. Verse 17, he looked directly at them. He looked them in the eye. And he said, what then is that is written? So he's going to quote Psalm 118.22, which says, Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This term for Jesus is repeated throughout the New Testament. The cornerstone. The cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. The foundation of everything. Acts 4, 11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Back then, they would go look at these quarries and find rocks to build their, to build their big um, edifices. And they would go and they would look for the perfect stone. And if they didn't like the stone, they'd throw it out. And the imagery here is that they took Jesus, the perfect stone, and instead of embracing him and taking him, they threw him out. They rejected him. We don't want Jesus. But that stone that they rejected, God says, nope, I'm using that stone. It's going to be the cornerstone. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be the foundation of everything. It's the only foundation. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. 
And then Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 2, 6-8. It stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. These religious leaders have rejected Jesus. He's going to die outside the camp. He's going to die on the cross. But the stone that the builders rejected, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he's going to become the cornerstone. He's the only way. Now, the imagery of Jesus being the stone is not the only imagery. Okay, Israel is the vineyard. What did Jesus say about himself? We read it earlier during our time of prayer. John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. There's a double metaphor going on here. Who's really the vineyard that's producing the great fruit? Jesus. Who's the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected? Jesus. Jesus is the only beloved Son of God. Jesus suffered outside the city on the cross in our place. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the chief cornerstone and solid foundation. Jesus is the true vine that provides spiritual nourishment and strength. And so Jesus ends this parable with a strong warning. What's the warning? Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There are only two responses a person can have to Jesus as the chief cornerstone. One is to reject the stone. And if you reject Jesus, you experiencing the crushing weight of eternal hell. You'll be crushed on that final day by God's justice. The other response is to receive Jesus by faith and experience the joy of forgiveness and eternal life. One of the most popular passages of Scripture, and you could probably memorize, you have it memorized, but I want you to, I want you to, to, to read it with me afresh. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His what? Only Son. Only begotten. One and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What did the landowner send? I will send my only Son. That word only begotten, only, really means one of a kind, unique, one and only beloved Son. And so we know the promise from John 3.16, right? God so loved us that He gave His only Son that whoever believes, if you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. But you know what verses 17 and 18 say? We often don't go all the way, do we? Response number one is to believe and have eternal life. Listen to how Jesus goes on. John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed 
in the name of the only Son of God. If you believe, you have eternal life. If you don't believe, you fall under the crushing weight of that stone that the builders rejected who's become the cornerstone. He's not your Savior. He's your judge. There's only two options with Jesus. He's either your Savior or He's your judge. He's either your Savior or your judge. There's no middle ground. Romans 14.11 says this, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. On that final day, everybody will be on their knees. Some voluntarily on their knees, bowing in worship and adoration because they've trusted Jesus Christ as their chief cornerstone, their Savior. Others on their knees because they've tripped over the stone and they've rejected him and they've fallen down and they're on their knees in judgment before a holy God. So don't presume upon the patience of God. Trust in Jesus today and do what Psalm 2 urges us to do. How does Psalm 2 end? Psalm 2.12 Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What does it mean to kiss the sun? And back in those days, you would bow before a king and you would kiss the hand of a, of a monarch. You'd kiss the can, hand of an emperor. And so the imagery here is Jesus is the sun. And we would all bow before him and we'd kiss his hand. We'd we'd bow before him in worship. We'd come before him as our chief cornerstone, as the vine, that we would take refuge in him. And when you bow down and you kiss the son and you think about kissing the hands of Jesus, I want you to remember something about those hands. Those hands that were spread out on a cross. Nails in hands, nails in feet. Hands stretched out on a cross, taking your sin. Hands that today are stretched out, where Jesus is saying, Come to me all. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and find salvation. I want just to remind you something. Yes, there is a day of judgment, but let me just remind you Jesus stands ready, willing, and and able to save anybody here today that would come to him and bow before him as the king. He is ready to receive you if you will find refuge in him. So let's all find refuge, find strength, find hope, find mercy in the beloved son, Jesus, the true vine, the chief cornerstone, the one who died outside the camp on a cruel cross so that you and I could have eternal life. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Jesus, you are the chief cornerstone. 
You are the stone that the builders rejected, and the builders are the, the scribes and the Pharisees and those that sentenced you to death. May we be those that bow before you, fall on our knees before you, to find you to be the beloved Son of God, to receive you. Lord, help us to bear fruit this week, fruit that will last. And we know that only comes from you, Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you give us strength. Help us to abide in the vine that is Christ. For apart from you, Jesus, we can do nothing. I guess, Lord, what I, what I really want us to think about as we, as we pray to you, Lord Jesus, is, is our desperation. Without you, we can do nothing. We are nothing without you. You're our everything. You're the vine. We're the branches. You're the chief cornerstone. You're the beloved son. You're our king. And will we be like Psalm 2? Will we kiss the son? Will we find refuge in the son? Will we bow before the beloved son? You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. We love you, Jesus. Help us to enjoy that grace this week. Help us to be those that abide in you and bear fruit, and fruit that will last. To your glory alone, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen and amen.